very happy to be with you on this occasion of the, the first Aquinas lecture here on your new campus. To celebrate the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas is to honor a man with a zealous love for learning and an intense desire for God. Each of these is important in itself. Some people pursue one and not the other. Some people pursue both of these, but as separate enterprises. For Aquinas, they are deeply connected, and he is clear about which of them is the higher end. I draw the title for this lecture from a book that I hope that you will someday read, The Love of Learning and the Desire for God, by Jean Leclerc, a Benedictine priest. He is a monk whose aim is to provide an understanding of the heart of monasticism by introducing his readers to a rich array of medieval authors. His method is to show the profound interconnection that these authors saw between, of all things, grammar and spirituality. For the proper study of Revelation, as it is found in the scriptures, the monks needed to be able to read, to comprehend what they read, and to read what was deeply nourishing. Leclerc traces this theme as it appears in such well-known figures as Benedict and Gregory the Great and Bernard of Clairvaux, as well as in a vast array of lesser lights, all of whom were committed to living out the great Benedictine motto, Ora et labora, work and prayer. The writers under study in the clerk's volume composed not only learned commentaries on the Bible, but also, precisely, they read countless grammars and other aids useful in advancing the monastic practice of Lectio Divina. To use a phrase found frequently in their grammar books, their goal was to help individuals with what they needed in order to pray. And the phrase they use is meditari aut legere, to meditate or to read. In the spirit of Leclerc's focus on the connection between grammar and spirituality, I will return in due time to a consideration of that interesting conjunction used in the phrase, meditari aut legere, the word aut, which means or. It's more significant than one might at first tend to think. But let me turn to Thomas. Thomas Aquinas, to be sure, was not a monk, but a mendicant friar. His education, however, began in the great Benedictine Abbey of Monte Cassino, where he was an oblate from about the age of seven to about the age of 12. The wars then ravaging the region led his parents to bring him home at that point. A bit later, however, he was sent to the newly founded university in Naples. And there, he met the order of preachers and decided to join their ranks. Mindful that there might well be family opposition to this, the friars immediately moved to take Thomas North up to their studium in Cologne. They were right to suspect family opposition, for his own brothers kidnapped him from the Dominicans and imprisoned him in the family castle at Monte San Giovanni, 
as a side note, nowadays, that castle is a delightful wedding palace that is much sought after venue in the Frosinone region. I've had the chance to visit it twice. I hope you get there. You could have your weddings there. The year that he had to spend waiting there failed to chill his desire to join the ranks of the new order. What he had learned from the trivium of the Benedictine monks proved to be of abiding value to his life as a Dominican friar and to all his subsequent theological work. Before I turn to a consideration of just how the monks and later the friars were accustomed to read and pray the scriptures and the interesting use of that conjunction in the phrase meditari aut legere, let me turn to some of the important aspects of Thomas's theology. I realize that your formal study of that will take place in junior and senior year. One point to consider is just what Thomas thought theology was. Another is the character of his doctrine of God. And a third is a surprising argument that he makes in the opening section of the Summa, the opening question. So first, Thomistic theology, the proper subject of theology, God and the things of God. As Jean-Pierre Torel shows in detail in his understanding of just what it is to do theology. For the most influential Christian thinker of the first millennium of the Christian West, Augustine as Hippo, theology consisted in the work of the interpretation of the scriptures. I was talking to some of you who are reading your City of God, and of course, the most theological aspects of that are his interpretation of the scriptures. Bringing to bear the rich resources of his studies in literature and rhetoric, Augustine, like many a patristic writer, envisions the work of theology to be primarily a matter of understanding the various senses of scripture, that is, the levels of meaning within the scriptures, the better to draw fruit for the life of faith. From his very first Christian works, such as On the Sermon on the Mount, through no less than four commentaries on Genesis and an extensive commentary on the Psalms, to such monumental works as On the Trinity and the City of God, there is a preponderance of attention given to the task of interpreting the Bible. For Augustine, the Word of God is the central concern of the theologian. For Bonaventure and many of those in the Franciscan tradition, the proper subject of theology is Christ and the sacraments. Whether we look to such speculative works by Bonaventure as the Tree of Life or the Itinerarium Mentis in Deum, the journey of the mind into God, or to such scholastic projects as the reduction of all arts to theology, Bonaventure's approach to theology is deeply Christological. The central image of the mind's journey into God, for instance, is the seraphic Christ, that is Christ mounted on a seraph serpent. Bonaventure takes this image to provide both a map of the soul's power and a route to the progress of the soul toward eternal rest in God. Likewise, his book, Life of St. Francis, is not only an official replacement 
for those biographies of the saint whose authors were so enthusiastic about Francis as to risk turning him into a new center for the Christian religion. It is also a spiritual theology that sees the saint as offering a reliable new charism to which his followers can reliably entrust themselves precisely because Francis let his life wholly be shaped by the life of Christ. Under the influence of Aquinas, however, theology came to be understood as the study of God and the things of God. Every other topic that was to be included within theology has the warrant for its presence by its relationship to God, including creation, the fall, the redemption, the way to understand the scriptures using the fourfold senses, the church, heaven, and salvation. In this schema, such vital topics as the nature of Christ, the persons of the Trinity, the sacraments, the relation of nature and grace, all have their place within the scientia of theology, considered as a field whose proper subject matter is God and the things of God. If we still take it for granted that theology properly understood, not that many universities do that anymore, but if we still take it for granted that theology is properly understood as about God, it is because of what Aquinas accomplished. Next part, the first question of the first part of the Summa of Theology. The perspective that Aquinas chose to take in the opening question of the Summa can be surprising. It might even make us wonder whether we have read it wrong or perhaps whether some error has crept into the text. He boldly asks whether knowing God requires anything besides philosophy, just the opposite to the Augustinians. However curious that notion might strike us, it is his opening gambit. What he assumes is that the philosophical insight that is built up by human reason, that is learning, is enough for many purposes in theology. What he feels the need to argue for, as something not simply evident, is that human beings do still need divine revelation for their salvation. In this way, what he takes as obvious, philosophical reason, seems to be just the opposite of what we might think obvious. But the reasons that he gives for holding that we also need revelation are powerful reasons. Some truths about God exceed the reach of human reason, and even with regard to those things that human reason can in principle discover for themselves, it will take a long time, not all will be up to the task, and there is the ever-present possibility of error in reasoning. These are indeed good and solid reasons. Granted, it is doubtful that most people would start where he starts or would anywhere near so much give so much credit to philosophy for achieving a knowledge of God. Presumably all of those studied at places other than TAC. For many believers, to use a starting point such as this is to start the project on the wrong foot. But Thomas provides in the Summa a sustained effort to show the sufficiency of human reason for answering a vast number of questions. The topics he investigates range from the demonstrations offered for the existence of God, 
through the attributes of God, the hierarchy of the angelic intelligences, the powers of the soul, the differentiation between the acts by which human beings move toward their end, free choices, and the passions of the soul, which he systematizes as 11 in number, divided into concupiscible and irascible passions. Those passions can be molded into our natural moral virtues and so on. If I've understood your curriculum here at this college, you will come to study many of these topics. On the other hand, he is not afraid to point out questions where he finds human reason insufficient to decide a question and where we must depend upon revelation if we're going to make theological progress. For instance, whether the universe is eternal or created in time, how many persons there are in the Trinity, the workings of grace. From the perspective of then of the topic that I've chosen for this lecture, the love of learning and the desire for God, what he presents to us in much of the Summa falls heavily on the side of the love of learning. Learning about God's existence, about the world, about human nature. He uses the ways that Aristotle's philosophy employs reasoning from effects back to causes, from plurality back to unity, from experiences back to the principles that make experience possible. What shall we say about the desire for God? Where in his approach do we find it? In what ways do we find it? On any fair estimate, Aquinas' doctrine of God, as found, for instance, in the first part of the Summa, is deeply apophatic. This technical term, apophatic, is used in contrast to cataphatic as a way of differentiating between the position that reason must be extremely cautious and used with great reserve in whatever we say about God, that's apophatic theology, and the position that we can be bold and effusive in our language about God on the basis of biblical revelation. That's cataphatic theology. In question two of the first part of the Summa, Aquinas presents his views on the question of whether one can demonstrate the existence of God. After raising his objection to Anselm's ontological approach, he sets out his famous five ways. But then his apophaticism comes quickly into evidence and is sustained for most of the rest of the first part of the Summa. He shows that it is impossible for us to know the essence of God. In a sustained review of the traditional attributes of God, he argues forcefully that there are severe limits to what we can discover about God by reason. And yet, his awareness of the limits of our mind when it tries to understand what God is, does not in any way dull his desire for God. In brief, St. Thomas holds by reason that we can know more about what God is not than about what God is. God is not finite, not composite, not material, not limited. But as regards what we can know about God, we need to practice a deep-seated and far-ranging humility. In any effort to speak about things like 
God's knowledge, God's power, God's goodness, God's justice, God's mercy, and so on, the best strategy that we have is to start with what is familiar to us from our experience and then to be very strong in negating any limits. Thus, the first step for him is to consider things like knowledge, power, goodness, and so on. But as a second step, we must deny that God is in any way limited in these things. We use these words so easily when we ponder human cognition or even animal cognition or when we ponder human power, animal power, machine power. But when we use them of God, what we must say is that God is not limited in knowing or limited in power or limited in goodness. We know most of the things we know by knowing the limits of things, but God has no limits. Third, we can, however, point out the direction in which the divine perfection lies. God is all-knowing, omniscient, even though we do not really know what it means to be knowing everything. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, even though we cannot really understand what it is to have all possible power. It's a great abstraction for us at best. By following the pathways of epistemic humility, that is, by admitting that God is not limited in any way, and that the best that we can do is to point out the direction in which God's infinity resides, Aquinas can avoid claiming to know what we do not know, and what we cannot know. And at the same time, he can escape agnosticism by his apophaticism. He can escape the agnosticism that results from supposing we can know absolutely nothing about God. Here, it may help to use some images, so long as we remember they are only images and only go so far. We know the direction in which divine perfection lies by pointing toward infinity. Normally, we know things by knowing their limited forms, their borders, their boundaries. But in this case, there are no such boundaries, no borders, no limits. And so we cannot, as it were, ever in principle get our intellectual arms around what these infinite perfections are. By pointing toward infinity, like we point toward the horizon, we point in a given direction and we avoid the hubris of thinking that we can comprehend God. We can be grateful to know something about God, even though we do not know all that we would like to know. On this subject, there is an extremely fine book that you should know about. Joseph Pieper's book, The Silence of St. Thomas. In that book, Pieper examines the time in the year 1273, a year before Aquinas' death, when he mysteriously ceased writing. And he gave as his only explanation, quote, all that I have previously written seems like straw. Some biographers think that the problem was some physiological event, perhaps a stroke. Pieper proposes a deeper explanation. 
namely, that Thomas's desire for God grew ever greater each year. And at this point, he was given somehow by God to recognize that his desire for God entirely outstripped the possibilities of speech and reason to say anything adequate on the subject. In short, his refusal to speak was epistemic humility in its very fine manifest form. In our Fordham University Church, I hope you'll come and visit sometime. Please do. There is a beautiful stained glass window that shows a miraculous vision that Aquinas had of Christ from an earlier time in his life, a time when he was back in his old university town in Naples. It shows Jesus appearing to Aquinas and saying to him, you have written well of me, Thomas. What do you wish of me? Aquinas's simple answer, only yourself, Lord. Now, at this later point in his life, 1273, it was not some further philosophical distinction or some careful treatises that needed to construct, he needed to construct. Rather, it was a time, yet again, for prayer. Let me suggest we turn to that question then. Prayer in the medieval tradition and prayer for Aquinas. Here at TAC, you have undertaken the study of classic texts by Aquinas and other medieval authors. Have you noticed how many of them quote a wide range of scriptural texts and seem to do it so effortlessly? At least it's one of my absolute points of fascination how they do that. Did they have the whole of the Bible memorized? No matter what is under discussion, there always seems to be relevant passages to cite. And it is not just Aquinas who manages this, but Anselm and Bonaventure, Scotus and Occam, and even many less famous figures. The deeper one looks into the literature, the more one sees how widespread the practice was. The familiarity they had with the Bible was much more than most of us can claim. The explanation is not, of course, that they had nothing else to read or nothing better to do. Rather, it comes from the nature of the education that had been developed in the monastic schools. Part of what made it possible for Aquinas to make his mark by developing a new synthesis for integrating faith and reason and by using even works once thought to be dangerous to the faith, the works of Aristotle, the reason was that he knew the scriptures in a way that is astounding for its breadth and its depth. In addition to the formal study of the Bible in an academic context, the medieval figures whom we delight in studying knew their Bible from praying, and especially praying through the offices of the monastic culture. They had offices at various times a day, Vespers, Matins, Lauds, many offices of day. And especially they knew it through Lectio Divina, a reading, a Lectio, of scripture that is oriented toward meditatio, meditation, and toward oratio, prayer. As Father Leclerc shows in great detail in his study of monastic culture, reading, even the simplest reading, 
usually involved pronouncing the words with one's lips, if not actually aloud, then at least in a low tone, so that one would hear the sentence that one was seeing with one's eyes. As a result, there came to be not just a visual memory, I think that our memory of texts is often a visual memory, it's not just a visual memory of the written word, there is also a muscular memory of the words that one has pronounced and an oral memory of the words that one has heard oneself pronounce and especially that one has heard sung in those monastic offices that they were busy singing all day long. The figures that Leclerc cites comes from across the medieval period. One of the texts that I presume that you have already or soon will read is the Confessions of Augustine. That book, of course, includes a famous scene of Augustine, stand ill, that in Augustine's day was so unusual that it simply stopped Augustine in his tracks. It kept him from disturbing the bishop with all of his innumerable questions. He was so eager to pose them to Augustine, but, uh, to Ambrose, but when he saw him reading without moving his lips, he couldn't believe it. And he thought, this man, so busy, leave him have a little bit of leisure. Whenever Augustine read, throughout his life, he tells us, he read aloud, or at least by doing what we might call subvocalizing. This approach seems to have been the way in which virtually everyone then read. That Ambrose was not even moving his lips amazed Augustine, held him back from pressing the bishop for conversation. I cannot help but think that the experience of not asking Ambrose the questions he wanted to ask also gave Augustine certain insights about the inner life. When you read his confessions and you see the various gems he has about what is taking place within, and I think that he understood even more of that from seeing Ambrose that day. His insights that contributed to the understanding he had that the mind is a power of the immaterial soul and to his conviction that there is a whole world that is real but immaterial and that we know by the signs that are words and yet their significations are other than the signs that convey them. In fact, this world that is immaterial is even more real than the passing parade of material objects and actions that had held him bound by their fascinating allure. Until the practice of silent reading became dominant, and that was a long time in coming, the standard way in which to read involved speaking the text or at least subvocalizing with the resultant muscular memory and aural memory of both word and of song of which the clerk speaks. Part of the situation, of course, was a technical problem. Before the practice of putting spaces between the words became common, reading requires that one sound out a text. That is, they wrote like they spoke and they didn't put spaces in between the words when speaking, so why? do it when writing. But if you don't do that, then you have to parse out the text as you go along. Just as when we speak, we run all the words together without separating them, manuscripts were written in that same fashion. If you should ever choose to study paleography 
or perhaps just come and take up my invitation to see New York and visit the Met or the Cloisters or the Morgan, you will have the chance to see for yourself how sounding out the text is indispensable to reading it, even for a text that is familiar. How does the monastic style of Lectio Divina help answer our question about the desire for God? Father Leclerc offers considerable insight about this in his description of how it works as an approach to prayer. By pronouncing the words, either aloud or through subvocalization, in the slow and deliberate repetition of a scripture text, the one who is praying can develop a muscular memory of the words that are pronounced as well as an aural memory of the words heard and not just a visual memory of words written on the page. In his view, quote, the meditatio consists in applying oneself with attention to this exercise. It is what inscribes, so to speak, the sacred text within the body and in the soul. A number of monastic authors whom Father Leclerc quotes in this regard describe the practice of repeating the words of scripture in this way by such phrases as mastication, chewing, and spiritual nutrition. By borrowing the vocabulary of eating, of digestion, and especially of the chewing typical of flocks and herds, the medieval authors come to speak of prayer as meditation and rumination. The flock needs to eat. To meditate, Leclerc explains, is to attach oneself closely to the sentence being recited and to weigh all its words in order to sound the depths of their full meaning. It means assimilating the content of a text by means of a kind of mastication which releases its full flavor, his image. To take just one of the many examples Leclerc cites, the Cistercian Arnul of Boharis offers this account of Lectio Divina in prayerful reading. When he reads, let the monk seek for savor, not science. The Holy Scripture is the well from Jacob from which the waters are drawn, which will be poured out in prayer. Thus there will be no need to go to the oratory to begin to pray. But in reading itself, means will be found for prayer and contemplation. Meditari aut legere. The effect of this way of uniting reading, meditation, and prayer is to promote a habit of reminiscence. The verbal echoes of a word can arouse the memory in such a way that a mere illusion will spontaneously evoke whole quotations. A scriptural phrase will naturally suggest allusions elsewhere in the sacred books. Each word is like a hook, so to speak. It catches hold of one or several other texts that are linked to it. For the cleric, this habit of association explains much about medieval writers and their facility with coming up with scriptural passages. When their citations of scripture differ in some way from what is now what regarded as the standard text of the Bible, it is not that they're quoting from some other unknown manuscript or that they're deliberately modifying the text, it's simply that they're quoting from memory. 
An important part of the background here is also the culture of silence that typified monastic life. Keeping the silence was a principal obligation of the monks. When they speak, the sound of the voice has an importance greater than we might be inclined to give it in a noise-filled culture like our own. This phenomenon strikes me as similar to the situation with regard to images. Monasteries, most of them at least, have relatively few images and have greater effect than when we're inundated by them. The constant flurry of images that is present in our lives has, effect, has effects that we could easily overlook. It seems to me that we are less affected by images than our forebears were precisely because we have so many of them. And we get so used to having the flurry of images constantly about us that we have a hard time even imagining a life without all these images. Particularly when we get used to the internet and other electronic media, we can easily acquire the habit of looking mindlessly at a panorama of images. I know you never do that. Even though we find few of them satisfying, Yet, we tend to scroll through the clusters of images looking for something exciting or titillating and nothing ever really fills us. With a proper consideration of the Middle Ages, we can get a taste of what it must have been like to live in a world where images were fewer and what images there were could be better treasured. Likewise, in monastic life, we find a world that is primarily silent. In this ambience, it is all the more possible to appreciate the sound of a voice, especially when it is used on texts that speak to the desire for God, and to hear them repeated over and over again in words and in song that speak to this desire. While we cannot completely replicate this experience for ourselves, there are interesting things we can do. For myself, in an effort to engage more deeply in the daily recitation of the divine office, I cherish a practice that I learned from the School Sisters of Christ the King out in Lincoln, Nebraska, when I've gone out there to give retreats. We like to tease. I say, I have more people in my neighborhood in the Bronx than you have in Nebraska. And they retort, and we have more bison. And that's true. Okay. <laughs> Whether they are reciting the psalms or chanting them, they have the interesting practice of stopping at the end of each line for two beats before they go on to even the next verse or the next part of the same verse. I find it amazing how even that use of a simple device, stopping for two beats, makes for a more meditative reading of the psalms. After they get used to this rhythm, they don't need to tap their finger or the book or anything else the way I had to do at first in order to get used to it. The pause to listen to what they have just read and to get its meaning makes the reading meditative. I find now that I simply prefer to do it this way, whether I'm by myself or with friends with whom I've introduced this particular practice. Perhaps one might take a minute with me to experience this by reading a couple of stanzas of a psalm together. 
On the back of your handout, you will find the first part of Psalm 42. Let me invite you to read it aloud with me. So go ahead and say it aloud, at least softly, but be sure to include a little two-beat count as we go. Like the deer that yearns for running streams, so my soul is yearning for you, my God. My soul is thirsting for God, the God of my life. When can I enter and see the face of God? My tears have become my bread by night, by day. As I hear it said all day long, where is your God? These things will I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would lead the rejoicing crowd into the house of God amid cries of gladness and thanksgiving. The throng wild with joy. Now that is just a brief exercise, but imagine making it a habit such that you prayed this way anytime you could when praying the Psalms. I, I find it, it doesn't add much time to my recitation of the divine office, but it makes it so much more a prayer than reading with the speed that I tend to read with my eyes. I hope that you enjoyed praying this altar this way. I know I do. In addition to the visual memory that is probably stronger in our typical way of reading, there would come to be an oral memory through hearing the words sounded, and a muscle memory, and a grasp of what the text means, and perhaps even a savoring of these words about God that would respond to the question of the desire for God. The learning that we love in this way could become responsive to our desire for God. Now, of course, this sort of meditation is only a starting point. For the many ways in which we, the love of learning, can be linked to the desire for God. Let me turn briefly to some of the other refinements that have come about in the part of the tradition of mental prayer as a way to link the love of learning and the desire for God. My own tradition, the Ignatian tradition, is a sphere of experience in mental prayer that grew out of this starting point in the Benedictine tradition. And so I will here for the next few minutes use the terminology that is distinctive of St. Ignatius rather than Benedictine terminology in my efforts to describe it. We share with the Benedictine tradition the habit of describing meditation as a kind of rumination or chewing, thoughtful chewing on the material. We also recommend the mental prayer of contemplation of the text, but can equally well refer to thinking, the various kinds of thinking that we do about some theme or idea that comes to us from a biblical passage. For meditation in this sense to work well, it generally proves important to prepare 
for a period of mental prayer. To prepare in advance, maybe the night before, by identifying some points for prayer. For instance, if one wants to do meditation on the meaning in the morning, it will be very helpful to look over the text in the evening and even to write down two or three or four themes that one will then use for rumination in the morning. Then, whenever we settle down for prayer, what we do is to begin by thinking about the first of the items that we have chosen as a point to begin the period of prayer. We might start thinking about what the words mean, what the events are, what their significance is. And we continue on this way for a couple of minutes, but in order to fill the mind with that thought rather than whatever else was going on. And yet the goal of meditation is not to keep on thinking, but rather to turn and stop thinking and to start speaking to God about it. That is, to raise the mind and heart to prayer from what one has just been thinking about. Just as the monks and the friars spoke of savoring what they had read, it is perfectly appropriate to cease speaking and to savor what we have thought about and what we have said in simple silence. We can then stay at a given point through a judicious use of the practice of thinking and listening and speaking and being quiet. We can then stay as long as we want on a given point and as long as it seems fruitful. It is important to be comfortable with a bit of quiet and then to resume the conversation when it seems the right thing to do. And when one is ready to move on to the next point that one had prepared. If we want to, we're free to do so. This is to make use of the mind in prayer, letting the love of learning issue in a desire for God. It's a way to do it without letting prayer, mental prayer, simply become Bible study. It is really and truly to use the mind for prayer. When the Ignatian tradition uses the word meditation for this kind of ruminative thinking, that is, chewing on the text and its ideas, and the prayer to which it leads, we make a distinction here between meditation and contemplation. We use the word contemplation for a ruminative imagining. Now, admittedly, some people have a vivid imagination. They can practically see the events in a given biblical story unfold as if it were a kind of movie, running within the mind. But many people, myself included, do not have that sort of imagination. Even so, contemplation remains a real possibility for us. In fact, I think that it has special potential as a way to move from the love of learning to the desire for God. In this approach, it is also valuable to prepare, for example, the night beforehand. Let me focus on another aspect of this mental prayer and this preparative stage for just a moment before I give an example and turn to the practice of contemplative prayer itself. For any kind of mental prayer, meditation or contemplation in the Ignatian tradition, what we do when we prepare should begin by deciding on what grace we want to ask God for. 
It may be obvious to us what grace we need, and if so, we do well to simply start the period of prayer by asking for that grace and then sticking with that asking as long as we want to. Even if we never get around to the meditation or the contemplation, that's fine. On the other hand, it may be not so obvious to us what grace to ask for. Here, it can be helpful to have yet other mental prayer techniques in our quiver. There is a Jesuit practice in Ignatian prayer called the examination of conscience. I won't go into all the details here, but simply mention this, that in the Ignatian tradition, the examination of conscience is not just going down the list, right? It's not just sort of a laundry list, even a good one looking at the commandments or something. In the Ignatian tradition, the examination of conscience is intended as a prayer, a daily prayer, of about 10 minutes, and it has its own structure. I'd love to describe that to you, but I don't want to make too many things on the table at once. I want to focus simply on one of the elements of this 10 minutes. Namely, when we have finished our review of the day, we're supposed to come up with a kind of resolution. We're supposed to start charting our course. What do I want to do differently tomorrow? Or what do I not want to do? Good to write those things down. Probably not to write the rest of it down. But when we figure out what course we're to chart and write it down someplace, we have a real sense of what we need, of the grace we should ask for. Suppose we did this prayerful examination of conscience every day, and suppose that the one part of it that we actually write down in a little notebook is simply this resolution for the next day, something like, be more patient with Joseph, or spend a little more time, quiet time in the chapel, or be thankful about the gifts God has given me, or get creative about how to change the topic and avoid gossip, or whatever it is that we need to do. If we were to write down that resolution, some crisp and clear formulation, I suspect that over the course of the month, we would probably have written down the same resolution about a dozen times in the course of 30 days. I think that discovering how frequently something needs to be our daily resolution would easily point to the grace we should ask for for the whole next month. This is what I mean when I say start out a period of mental prayer with preparation. After making the choice of the grace to ask for, what we'll ask God for at the beginning of our period of meditation or at the beginning of our period of contemplation, then we need to decide on some topic. What will be the content is from the life of Jesus abound in the daily gospel. Sometimes those daily stories are about his words, what we heard this morning since we offered the readings for the Mass of Thomas Aquinas. Sometimes they're about his deeds. If we had not been celebrating the Mass of Thomas Aquinas, we would have used the other passage that's on the back of your handout. When we actually come to the time for contemplative prayer, what we can then do is to mention, out loud or sub-vocalizing, a couple of details and then try to imagine them. That's my answer to the problem that I can't just in my mind spontaneously generate a movie. 
In this morning's gospel, had we read simply what the church had been using, namely Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, we could begin by imagining Blessed Mother and some of Jesus' relatives coming to look for him and finding him inside a house with a crowd that is trying to get in and it's spilling out onto the porch and over into the yard. One could spend a while just trying to imagine that. What did Blessed Mother look like? Where was she standing? How many dozens of people were in the way she couldn't get near the Lord? How did she look? What was she doing when she couldn't get near? We might start also by imagining what the house looks like, how the porch is arranged. We might see the various people, some sitting, some standing. No way for Blessed Mother even to get close. If seeing that much in our imagination and then stopping there lets us raise our mind and heart to God, then no need even to go any further. No need to picture anything else. But we use the learning that we have about what the text means to be a way to begin our prayer and to have it focused on Jesus' deeds. If, on the other hand, we do that, not too much is happening, then we go on to the next thing we need to imagine. We're ready to move on to new details. Seeing Blessed Mother in her discreet and lovely maternal way, whispering a message to one of the disciples whom she recognized, a message she wants him to pass along to others, and eventually to Jesus who is inside. And then we might stop on that much of the image. Just watch her and watch them. And if there is fruit for prayer in watching that part, we stay there as long as it is fruitful. It's the reason why so many of us, I think, go to Blessed Mother anyway and ask her to win grace that we need from the Lord. There is no need to rush on even to the second verse, and yet there is much more available in even that text that you have on your handouts. It can be at any one stage a place that gives material for the imagination, a resting place for us, a place where we can stop and pray. Just imagine one person passing the message on to the next and he to the next, and eventually it gets to Jesus, hopefully not garbled. Your mother and your brethren are outside asking. Perhaps while all the message, passage, message passing is going on, we might also listen to whatever our Lord was preaching about, whatever his voice was from the house. We might imagine hearing him explain something to those seated around, and then suddenly, suddenly we imagine another voice, this time someone giving him the message from Blessed Mother. Your mother and your brethren are here. We can stop at that point and try to raise our minds and hearts in prayer, saying whatever we want to say in prayer. In this style of praying, for us we, in the society we call it contemplation, in this style of praying with the mind, the point is not to get to the end of the passage. And yet, the ending of the passage is there awaiting us when we want it. In this case, it is a phrase that combines Jesus' incredible praise for his mother with an invitation to us to be as good a disciple of his as she was. Who are my mother and my brethren? Here are my mother, here are my brethren. 
Whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and mother. There's much to ponder here, much that can be a string poured for prayer. Doing the will of God, what does it mean in my present circumstances? Perhaps gratitude for having been made the brother or sister of Jesus by our adoption in baptism. Perhaps with our own version of the associative patterns of the medieval monks and friars, the ones they love to cultivate, just looking at Blessed Mother and her utter and complete fidelity to her son over the years, perhaps asking her to let us accompany her in doing God's will. Well, with all this in mind, there are many ways of uniting our love of learning with our desire for God, many ways of cultivating our desire for God by making good use of our learning. Let me close by returning to the last period of Thomas's life in the spirit of the book by Joseph Pieper, The Silence of St. Thomas. During various periods of Aquinas's life, he had worked as a papal theologian. When Thomas suddenly stopped writing, the Pope at one point intervened, hoping to shake him out of his doldrums by sending him to the Council of Lyon that was to meet in 1274. Now it was most unusual for a friar to ride anywhere in those days. The asceticism of the Dominican order required that friars were to walk wherever they went. In his affliction, however, Thomas was riding, and inadvertently, because he was silent, out of it, he inadvertently hit his head on a low-lying branch. They immediately carried him unconscious to an inn at Mainza to recover, but once he regained consciousness, he didn't like being in a medieval inn, and he was asked to be taken to a religious house. The closest place was a Cistercian abbey at Fossa Nuova, dry ditch. I've had the chance to visit there twice and to see a small set of rooms in the guest house where they carried him. As he started to recover, the monks begged him for some conferences. <laughs> Thomas tried to decline and urged them to study the works of Bernard of Clairvaux. But at the monk's insistence, he eventually agreed to give them some talks on a book that had been very dear to Bernard, namely, The Song of Songs. The very last two conferences that he gave are on this Song of Songs. Only shortly thereafter, death took him. They are, of course, instances of his meditations on a text about the love of God and they reflect his deep-seated desire for God. It is a theme that clearly filled Thomas's prayer all his life, and one that is frequently to be found in important places within his works like the Summa, as well as in various commentaries on scripture, as well as in this highly incomplete set of texts on the Song of Songs. Thomas used his love of learning, even in a phase of his life when he could not operate in the way that he had been accustomed to do. Even at the end, he remained a student of the Benedictine tradition in which he had been brought up. Meditari aut legere, to meditate or to read. Learning how to read well can be a way of learning how to meditate. 
It is not a matter of reading quickly or reading a lot of things, but a case of reading well. Non multa, said multum. Not many things, but going into much depth. For Aquinas and for us, this can be a union of the love of learning and the desire for God. Thank you. Mm-hmm.